you can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Edition Podcast, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week we discuss whether or not the new Covid rules will tear the country apart. Also on the podcast, the real reason we should be disappointed in Aung San Suu Kyi. And at the very end, is Sally Rooney's normal people just overrated? First up, James Forsyth writes in this week's cover piece that the new local restrictions will tear the country apart because it's no longer a national lockdown. This is a moment of maximal peril for the government and James joins me now together with Andy Preston, Mayor of Middlesbrough, who released this statement that went viral last week. As things stand, we defy the government and we do not accept these measures. We need to get COVID under control and we need to work with people to find a way of preserving jobs, mental health. So James, there are new restrictions being floated around, but we're not heading into a national lockdown, and that's the problem. Boris Johnson has likened the kind of second national lockdown to, to a nuclear deterrent, and I think he'll be extremely reluctant to go there. First of all, it would be economically catastrophic, and secondly, it would prompt a huge rebellion from within his own party. But I think the problem for him is, if you look at this system that they are planning to move to, of kind of three areas of restrictions, is the areas that would be subject to the most intense restrictions would nearly all be in the north. And I think that poses a political danger to the Tories. The Tories won their majority in 2019 by essentially persuading the North that these weren't the same old Tories, but they cared deeply. I think the problem you're going to have is if life in the South is carrying on relatively as normal, while the North is under intense restrictions, uh, there will be a lot of criticism that, oh, the Tories aren't putting in additional financial support or very much additional financial support because it's the North and whatever they say, they don't really care. You know, one cabinet said to me, the problem is going to be that it's going to be like flooding. People are saying, if it was in Surrey, you'd be doing things very differently than you are because it is in the North. And I think this is the political problem for Boris Johnson. His whole centrepiece of his electoral strategy and his governing agenda is levelling up, is closing the north-south gap. But these restrictions risk, in economic terms, massively exacerbating that. Andy, you're mayor for Middlesbrough in in the north. Do you feel like there's been an unfair north-south divide in the COVID restrictions so far? Yes, I do. I mean, unfair is um, an interesting word. There's definitely a difference, isn't there? And and I think that's crystal clear. Even within the north, there is a difference. So, for example, in, in our conurbation, you know, sort of, 10 miles around Middlesbrough, you've got local authorities like Middlesbrough in these new restrictions, uh, which we, we didn't ask for, despite what people say. But we've got neighbouring authorities on pretty much the same numbers, not in restrictions. And, and that's down to some MPs having the ear of government. So, so there is a disparity. There is an unfairness and a, and a There's basically a gap that nobody really understands. It appears to be undemocratic and unscientific. And I think the government's got a huge conundrum on its hands. It's got to pacify its ministers who seem to rebelling and it's got to pacify the North, which is, you know, starting to make noises that it might rebel in some ways. So it's an extraordinarily difficult situation. I would suggest, in my opinion, the way through this is for the government to talk with local authorities, which based on my experience and the experience of of authorities that I know really well, they're just not. They say they are, but they really aren't. What they're doing is they're talking to some local MPs 
uh, who are on the same side, and that's fine, but they need to get to the heart of the, the data, the knowledge, the action, which is the local authority. And so central government, the first step of levelling up is to liaise with local power and local knowledge. Andy, speaking of rebellion, you were in a video statement last week said that you would defy the government on these restrictions. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so what I meant was, so, so, so first of all, that was actually articulated uh, very much with a hot head and in the heat of the moment. And, and what I meant by that was, look, this is completely unfair, it's unrealistic, it's going to cost thousands of jobs and it isn't going to reduce the spread of the virus any more than we had proposed. We've given an extraordinarily good proposal based on science, local data and skills and knowledge here. And they chose to ignore it. They didn't give us any feedback. They imposed something with literally no notice. And my message of defiance wasn't for a second that we wouldn't comply with the law because, of course, I will and everybody must do that. But... My message was, no, you've got it wrong. You've got it very wrong. Let's work together. Go away. Look at what we've given you and come back and discuss it. And and to, to set the record straight, I'm not, I hope I'm not at all childish or silly. And if someone reads our proposal and decides, you know what, we don't agree, that's fine. But to not give us any feedback, not to discuss or engage in any way, then to claim you have and to enforce stuff that, look, I left school in the 80s. I'm telling you how bad it was here. We are paying the cost now. Literally tens of millions of pounds are spent by Middlesbrough Council every year mopping up the problems that are around from the industrial recession of the 80s and the way it was handled. And what I fear right now is we're going to have exactly the same again. And that a little bit of penny pinching, a little lack of discussion and thought is going to lead to a colossal problem with health, mental health, jobs. The cost to places like Middlesbrough will be hundreds of millions over the next 10 and 20 years unless we get this right. So I I really want to talk to government. I want to work with them. I know they're serious about levelling up, but we've got to do this intelligently. James, as Andy has said, and as you say in your piece, one of the confusions over this is what is the criteria for going into a lockdown? It just seems like infections per 100,000, while have been touted, are not really the be-all and end-all. So why doesn't the government just come clean about what is the criteria? So I I quote a kind of government source in the piece saying, and I think this is true, that the best thing for them to do, and I don't think they will do this, the best thing for them to do would be to have a joint biosecurity committee kind of set out a series of simple criteria for when a place moves in or out of the enhanced restrictions. Because if you don't have that, if this is a matter of ministers sitting in a room and deciding, even if the process is not political, it'll be vulnerable to the accusation that it is. You saw today at PMQ's Keir Starmer saying to Boris Johnson, well, your local authority is at this number of infections and is not under restrictions. This place in the north was placed under restrictions when it was at a lower infection level than your own constituency currently is. And I think that that's why you have that why they, they need these clear criteria to protect themselves from this accusation. But I don't think they're going to go down that route. And I think that is potentially a very big mistake because as long as this is a judgment call by ministers, you're going to have people making the point that Andy makes, which is, you know, oh, why is my area under increased restrictions when the area a few miles away is not, and it appears to have a very similar caseload to ours. Yeah, and Andy, we've seen numbers as well about how local restrictions might not be working if you just look at the case numbers that continue to tick up from areas that have been under these restrictions. In Middlesbrough, are infections still going up? Do you think that these measures are working? Well, 
Do you know what? I think at a common sense level, we, we have to assume that they work. It makes sense to me that the less you allow people to mix, um, the less the virus will spread. However, obviously, the, 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 the number of infections is, is spiralling towards being out of control. So, whew, yes, I, I, what I believe is that what we have to do is have sensible measures in place. What, what is going on right now, and to use Boris Johnson's whack-a-mole analogy, what, what's going on is there's a mole popping up which says COVID infections, and the government keeps whacking it, and that's fine. But there are loads of other moles popping up now, which is actually general, general physical health, mental health, and jobs and the government is ignoring those moles and they keep whacking the infection mole and I'm not saying ignore the infection mole but think about all of the others and what we would proposed was a way of preserving jobs allowing people to mix in safe environments and I think that what what is coming out is it is draconian it's frustrating it's baffling people and what I fear is that the government is losing people this is dragging on so long and we've got six months of dark nights ahead of us people are going to give up the ghost and start ignoring all of the measures. So we really need to make sure that people see it making sense. We need money to enforce this stuff. We need more money for policing to enforce the rules. But for goodness sake, we need to keep these viable jobs alive. That is so critical. It's so critical. I won't harp on about the 80s, but I am going to mention it again. We are paying tens of millions a year in our tiny authority to mop up the problems that came about in the way the industrial recession of the 80s was handled. And James, finally, as, as if the English situation wasn't perilous enough, you also mentioned that the devolved nations are posing a threat to this national approach to COVID, especially in the second wave. Can you explain what's going on in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? So Nicola Sturgeon has, has very consciously chosen a different path to deal with COVID from the Westminster government. And I, I think that, A fits with her political personality but there's also no doubt that the SNP have used this crisis to, kind of, to make a point about borders you know you had a situation where the UK government thought that the kind of quarantining travellers from abroad would be a UK-wide policy they didn't understand slightly absurd they didn't understand the devolution settlement well enough to understand that this was going to be a devolved matter and so you had these different rules across the UK which I, I think one of the tensions is that because most of economic and tax policy is still reserved to Westminster. There is, I think, a danger that the devolves have a have an implication to go slow on opening up the economy because that's not a bill that they end up paying. And I think it's very interestingly Arlene Foster, the First Minister of Northern Ireland, she suggested, look, that all four nations should agree on a number of... And again, this comes back to a case for clarity about what triggers restrictions, but a number of infections per 100,000, at which point UK... Treasury economic support would kick in. And that wouldn't mean that devolved administrations couldn't take a more restrictive approach than that, but they couldn't then send the bill to Westminster. I think that would remove that incentive to lock down because it's not your job to produce most of the money. I think there's also particular tension about what the Welsh government are requesting, which is they are saying people from COVID hotspots in England should not be able to cross the border and travel to areas of low infection in Wales. Boris Johnson's already rejected this once, but I think there is a worry in Whitehall. But if the UK government keeps on rejecting this, this could become a bit of a nationalist cause celebre with people saying, look, you know, this is just ridiculous. Why, why can someone from Manchester or Liverpool drive to a low infection area of Wales when people who live in Wales live in high infection areas couldn't drive there? And so I think these tensions are going to come more and more to the fore. And I think this is the problem, which is, Boris Johnson always likes to say that the UK is better prepared for the second wave 
than it was for the first wave. And in many ways, that is true. Doctors know far more about how to treat the disease. We have more, if not enough, testing capacity, uh, and the government has better data. But politically, in that first wave, there was a huge sense of national solidarity that every, we're all in this together. This time around, it's going to be very, very different. And I think it's going to become much more fractious with the North saying, well, if this was the South being locked down, there'd be, you know, there would be more economic support on offer. The Scots and the Welsh doing their own thing. And I think that it's that fracturing. It's that fact that Boris Johnson can't speak to the country as one now about COVID, that is going to make his job and the government's job in the second wave much more difficult. Andy and James, thanks very much. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Now, historian Francis Pike argues in this week's magazine that it's as ignorant to demonise Aung San Suu Kyi as it was to idolise her as the West did before. Francis joins me now, together with Poppy McPherson, the Myanmar bureau chief for Reuters. So Francis, your piece is quite wide-ranging and it takes us through shedding light on who the Rohingya are and how they're considered within Myanmar as well as uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's other failings, for example, in the areas of democratisation of the country. Let's just start with the first part for now. You're not saying that what's happened to the Rohingya is justified, certainly not, but you are saying that we need to understand a bit more In particular, you suggest that the Burmese army is targeting the Rohingya because they've been infiltrated by jihadists. Can you expand on that? After 9-11, there was a worldwide movement which was jihadist and lots of people were inspired by 9-11 and radicalised by it. And that included people from Burma. And in fact, the leader of the Rohingya is a Pakistani Rohingya. He's thought to be the leader of the jihadist group. And they have been increasing terrorist activity since that time, and particularly since 2012, when there were a number of massacres and terrorist incidents, the terrorist threat has increased. What I'm trying to point out in my article is this is not simply a case of a racist Burmese army expelling a minority population. It's a much more nuanced story than that. Poppy, do you think that nuance is sometimes lost in the Western understanding of the situation? Well, I mean, I think I would say that, you know, you referred to to the leader of the Rohingya being a a terrorist, which is is not true. I I think you must be referring to the leader of the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, which is a Rohingya militant group that attacked police posts in 2016 and 2017. That's a minority outfit. It doesn't represent the sort of hundreds of thousands of Rohingya living in Myanmar. The idea that the population agrees with some kind of transnational Islamic terrorism has never been substantiated. The reports that have been done, the kind of in-depth investigations into the nature of the Rohingya militancy, um, have always found that they're not in line with any kind of sort of transnational Islamist agenda. Their stated goals are to fight for the the rights of the Rohingya inside Myanmar um, and and sort of fight back against persecution. Um, Those are the stated aims of the group. Francis, extremists don't represent the entire community? That's the Western narrative. It's It's not the reality. You've got to remember that ASA, which is the, the jihadist group, uh, started out as, as, the, as a faith, faith movement, and they changed their name and portrayed themselves as a, simply a liberation army. 
which is not is not the case. Uh, they are a terrorist jihadist. But what about the point that there are wider communities of Rohingya at stake here? And yeah, are I you mean, saying that all of them are extremists? You no, know, that's the problem. It always has been the problem with terrorist organisations is they radicalise their population through violence. And the same thing happened with the PLO. Same thing happened with Hamas, Shining Path, the IRA to, to some extent, ISIS, Taliban. You know, most people are not terrorists, but of course the population becomes radicalised when violence is injected into the situation. And that's what ASA did very successfully on the 25th of August 2017, when there were a broad range of attacks on 35 military and police stations in the Arakan. Poppy, has that narrative of beating jihadism been pertinent in the Burmese understanding of what's going on with the Rohingya? Is that how the government justifies what's going on to the public? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the dominant narrative and has been the dominant narrative in Myanmar. Going back before the attacks, actually, that the, the Rohingya were associated with um, terrorism. And, and as Francis mentioned, after 9-11, what happened in Myanmar was that there was a huge wave of fear, sort of stoked by a Buddhist nationalist movement, that the country was going to be subsumed by um, Islam and was going to be targeted by Islamist terror groups, and that was really stoked by this Buddhist nationalist movement over a number of years leading up to the election in 2015. Um, and so when these attacks happened on the police posts in northern Rakhine state in, in 2016, it played into that narrative absolutely, although these attacks were targeting security installations and were justified by um, the militant group as kind of a them fighting against a system that had persecuted them and oppressed this group for, for many decades. That was sort of framed by the Burmese military and uh, government and, and sort of a, a large number of people in the population as kind of a terrorist, as the thing that had been feared for many decades, this kind of Islamist takeover of Myanmar from the Western Gate. So the place where these attacks happened were on the border with Bangladesh, which is, of course, a Muslim-majority country, and Myanmar is Buddhist-majority so there's this real fear that this sort of Muslim neighbour is going to subsume Myanmar and, and convert it from a Buddhist state to a Muslim state, which was not the target of these attacks, according to the people who perpetrated them. They would say that it was for, as part of an agenda of getting more rights for the Rohingya people who, who have been systematically denied basic rights for many decades. And that would be a more convincing argument if these, this whole range of attacks that occurred hadn't happened the day after the Kofi Annan Commission report, which suggested a way forward to give Rohingya voting rights and nationality rights. And I think it was deliberately timed, mm. obviously, to squash that possibility. You know, rather like the Palestine Liberation Organisation or whatever... I don't think they're interested in in the dialogue. I think what they want is a, a separate state with a separate caliphate, and they call their leader, they call him Emir. You know, this is classic terrorist jihadi behaviour. Nobody is denying, by the way, that the Myanmar army is brutal. In common, it's a peasant army, poorly trained. They undoubtedly committed, in parts, atrocities. It's been quite clear, it's been proven. Poppy's colleagues have done very good work on that. But I think there's no evidence that the Myanmar government wants a genocide. 
In fact, it's counterproductive to what they want, which is actually they want more investment from the West. So it doesn't really, a genocide is absolutely not in their interests. Of course, they do fear, and the whole nation fears the fact that on the border with, with the Arakan, you have Bangladesh, which has 180 million Muslims. They fear being swamped. And in a sense, you know, some people who voted for Brexit feared the same thing. These are natural fears. And of course, in a more primitive society, they're even more fearful of that. All I'm trying to do is put a, some nuance into this picture. It's not a genocide. I think highly unlikely that will ever be proven. But it was initiated by jihadist activity. There's absolutely no evidence that the Rohingya militant group are motivated by religious zealotry or the wish to establish a caliphate. There's just been no documented evidence of that by any credible institution or establishment. Myself and, and many other journalists have interviewed members of the group and, and not, not any of them have mentioned, to my knowledge, this kind of goal, what, what everyone talks about is um, more autonomy within the country, more rights within the country, being accepted as an ethnic minority within the country. I mean, r- remember that Myanmar doesn't even acknowledge the word Rohingya itself. It views that as a made-up ethnicity by a group that's um, kind of making up a whole, a whole narrative and a whole identity for itself in a, in a kind of a malicious attempt to undermine the country. That's the kind of narrative of the military, and it has been. Francis said, Poppy, I also want to talk about Aung San Suu Kyi herself and Western expectations and this tension of why she has just been so different in office than a lot of people in the West was expecting. You say that her fall from grace is just so far because of the West's idolisation of her in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, look, that? if you're the princess in the tower, you know, the media can create of you whatever they want. And, you know, this is a very exciting story. She looked... You know, the younger Aung San Suu Kyi looked rather like a sort of Asian Audrey Hepburn. You know, she was rather she was rather rather beautiful, rather elegant, very well spoken, and she was the classic damsel in distress. I think the West had created ludicrous fantasies as to what she really she really was, and she is a Burman nationalist, pro Buddhist. Her father was a murderer, fought with the Japanese during the war, and then turned coat at the end of the war and claimed that he'd liberated Burma from, from Japan. And she wrote a very, uh, an appalling biography which passed over all of his crimes. And she's not, a, she's not a saint. Poppy, do you think Western journalists got her wrong or did she change? Is it the circumstances of her situation? What is it, how has this happened that, you know, the, the liberal sweetheart who gave the wreath lectures for Radio 4 uh, not so long ago is overseeing this very fragile state. Uh, yeah, as Francis said, um, you know, she, she wrote this biography that was very adoring of Aung San. She, she has been, I mean, people who know her or have known her, um, it's not, don't necessarily say that she's changed, um, people would say, you know, there were certainly critics of her in Myanmar at the time when, when she was being kind of praised as this godlike figure. There were there were critics who at the time were saying, hang on, she's she's got these very conservative tendencies, actually very sort of uh, sort of socially conservative. Um she she's a product of her of her environment. She she's a 
Baman uh, nationalist like her father. She's she's very proud of her country, and those are things that that were perhaps missed out of the of the portrayals of her at the time. Uh, in terms of her having changed on human rights, or, or you know that there's a there's a kind of narrative that she um, that she's had to hide her real feelings about the Rohingya because of her position with the military and, and, and because of the population's view on the Rohingya. You know, the vast majority of Burmese people don't sympathise with the Rohingya at all, so therefore Aung San Suu Kyi's had to, had to kind of hide her real feelings. Um, but, but there's, you know, people who know her, diplomats, say that she, she, has, she does not privately express sympathy with the Rohingya. She's certainly not publicly. So it's, that argument is, is, a, is a bit of a um, misleading one. Mm. And Poppy, nationalism aside, what about her commitments to democracy? As Francis has mentioned, your colleagues at Reuters and you yourself have been on the ground and two of your colleagues were arrested uh, a couple of years ago for reporting on the Rohingya situation. Do you think that Aung San Suu Kyi is committed to even just de- democratic values like press freedom? It seems um, definitely, as, as you said, journalists have continued to be pursued under the go- this government. She definitely doesn't speak out in favour of press freedom. Many journalists have been arrested for for things like contacting insurgent groups. Criminal defamation has been kind of wielded against the press very strongly. She doesn't see that as a as a cornerstone of of democracy what what her government and and she has have said publicly is kind of that the media should be um supporting the government should be helping the government rather than trying to undermine it and i think journalists and human rights defenders in myanmar are kind of caught at the moment between um the military who hate them and also uh, supporters of Aung San Suu Kyi and the government who also hate them because they they perceive them as undermining her government, her transition to democracy. Francis Poppy, thank you very much. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. And now Sally Rooney's Normal People has taken the world by storm. Even though it was only published two years ago, there's now been a TV adaptation. But one person she hasn't won over is Emily Hill, who writes in this week's Spectator, Spare me the chic-lit cult. Emily joins me now, together with James Marriott, the Times' deputy books editor. So Emily, can you first start by saying what you mean by chic-lit? So I made up the term because um, I basically, you know, during lockdown, we're all going completely insane. And um, so what I've ended up doing is going on one-star Amazon reviews of books I absolutely despise and uh, finally finding kinship with somebody in, in humanity um, because obviously nobody else agrees with me. And, and, and often I think people are typing so fast in fury that instead of uh, denouncing various books as like glorified chiclet, they actually say chiclet because they're just, you know... The, I don't know, maybe they're doing it on their phones and it's just autocorrecting, whatever. But I just thought, God, chiclet is the term for all these bloody books that I absolutely cannot stand and being forced to read. In a way, the COVID has helped me with my bookshop situation, which is what I tend to do is wander into a bookshop, try to find something I actually want to read, realise that literally everything's got Dolly Alderton's book, uh, recommendation on it. There's... I, I go through, I have to say I disagree with Dolly, I hate them all. And uh, I, I, I wander out again. 
And yeah, I was just just thoroughly depressed by the whole thing. Perhaps perhaps James is now going to try and cheer me up. <laughs> well, James, the chicest of them all, um, Emily identifies as Sally Rooney's normal people, which you'd called um, the best novel published in 2018. So do you think it was banal chiclet? Not at all. Although I do think she's onto something with the trend. I do think that identifying a trend of chiclet isn't isn't a ridiculous thing to do. I think she's probably angrier at uh, the very clever people in publishers' marketing departments than she is at actual novelists. I think it's a kind of it's an interesting social phenomenon, which is the readership for fiction is overwhelmingly female, and that's a sort of trend that I think has been growing in the last few decades and is probably greater than it ever has been now. And especially if you want to market fiction at young people, young men just don't very rarely read novels. So your market for, if you want that sort of market of young millennials, the kind of desirable market that publishers want, you're basically marketing books to young women. And entirely naturally, publishers have chased that demographic and you get what appears to us in the front tables of our local waterstones as this kind of trend of chic lit. But I would say that I don't think being popular or being part of a trend at all means a book is bad. Sometimes popular things are bad, but sometimes they're good. I I think Sally Rooney is immensely talented. And I think that book is much, I think there are many valid criticisms to be made of the book and it's not perfect in lots of ways, but I think it is, she's been sort of called a voice, her voice of her generation. I think that's completely accurate. And I think the most remarkable thing that book does, and I think a source of a lot of its popularity is the fact that she's managed to capture this generational voice, the Mm. sort of, She's really got that curious mixture between irony and sincerity that all the characters seem to hover between. The endless sort of self-doubt, the endless saying something, then sort of rephrasing it in your head, what you should have said, had you thought otherwise. And this sort of, this kind of self-consciousness and strange mixture of irony and sincerity that she captures in her novels, I think is very characteristic of her generation. And I think it's amazing and fantastic that the novel, this art form that's now hundreds of years old, has reinvented in Sally Rooney has been reinvented again to capture a new generational voice, a new, a slightly new way of consciousness, perhaps, in people of Sally Rooney's generation. And I just think that's a, a fantastic and exciting thing to witness. I just completely profoundly disagree. And I'm not I'm not upset with uh, publishers' marketing departments. I'm I'm really just aghast at these novelists. And I think Sally Rooney is I we disagree profoundly. I think she's a terrible writer. I think it's incredibly pedestrian. I agree with Will Self, to be honest. Um, he basically compared it to Lolita, which is like, I think, probably the last time that it's there's been a sensation on this level. If you look at the writing, there's just there's no competition whatsoever. Um, I think the whole book is, I am technically a millennial. If, if she's the voice of millennials, like, just shoot me. I'm ready to die. <laughs> um, and the, the whole book, they stare so fiercely at their own navels, they disappear up their belly buttons. It's just, it's, it's boring. I know that you identify with it, James, and I'm not criticising you. I mean, it's fantastic that, that you do and that so many people of your generation are probably going to exclude myself from, from that do love her and it's 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 absolutely for 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 people of your sensibilities who identify with this it's it's heaven this new chic lit situation in in many ways because but I just I I god I struggle with the book on so many levels just every single level I could pick it apart sentence by sentence and just I just ah. She's been edited to James Joyce. And she writes her mouth... Um, no, but her she, mouth tasted... I, I, I basically... I, I had to read... I was forced to read it by that awful television 
adaptation, <laughs> which was rammed down my eyeballs forcibly. And then, and then I, I, it was so dull and dishwater grey and just, you know, honestly, just thro- let me just throw myself out the window so I don't have to carry on anymore. But Emily, James has a point, doesn't he, when he says it's more um, about marketing departments? Because obviously people don't have to like every single book published and that's fine. Some novels are just not made for you. Sally Rooney's might not just not be made for you. But you seem to be raging against the sort of what you think is the overrating of Sally Rooney, that everyone must love her in every single book circle, judging panel, bookshop, whatever it is. So aren't you raging against the overrating of books that you don't deem that great and, that, and there's a sort of group think in these literary circles no it's, it's it's about the wider culture it's about all being forced to read a certain kind of book at a certain kind of time and there being no other options I mean I've really struggled to find any kind of book that I love I've, I've identified Alexandra Fuller who's a memoirist because your brilliant book said it's Sam Leith sent uh, her to her, to me and that was a revelation nothing else exists um the thing is is with James James is absolutely right James wrote this very beautiful sensitive piece of reportage about asking a very simple question, where have all the young male novelists gone, the hotshot young male novelists? Because, you know, you know, in the in the 2000s, I, you know, when I was actually James's age, I was forced to read, you know, McEwen and and uh, Amos and Barnes and and Ishiguro. And they were all better. Uh, Overwhelmingly, I, I feel like in terms of like, whether you like the novels or not, there was there was some sense of a tradition there was something to get involved with. I'm I'm worried, yes, I suppose I'm worried with the publicity departments to a certain extent. Like, you know, I think one of the things that worries me is it's it's fantastic that, you know, James loves this and he gets to write about it. But I think there's this culture of 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 the people kind of in power in kind of you know writing about these books and saying they're brilliant and there's actually this quiet rebellion going on of people who don't like them have got no way to voice that I would really question whether there aren't a lot of people who actually feel the way I do about Sally Rooney but there's absolutely no way for them to articulate that yeah and James do you think there is that sort of group thing and what is the way to you know diversify as it were but judging circles reviewing circles you know, I don't know. I have to say, I'm not necessarily sure that is the case. There are two brilliant essays that, although I disagree with them, are fantastically written that are very critical of Sally Rooney, that have been very influential this year and last year. Mm-hmm. There's one by a young critic called Becca Rothfield for the Point magazine, which went viral last year, which is a fantastic piece of literary criticism and a thorough takedown of Sally Rooney. You'll love it, Emily. Um, I've read it. I've read it. it, 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 it she she, she compares it to Fifty Shades of Grey, and she's absolutely right. Anyway, sorry. She. I don't think she had. Yeah. I, in that respect, she doesn't have no point, but I think it's a little bit simplified. And there's another great. There's another great piece by Katie Waldman in the New Yorker called "Her Self Awareness Gone Too Far in Fiction," which attacks Sally Rooney and other books in this trend for being. I think you'd you'd completely agree. Overly navel gazy, uh, self obsessed, endlessly self reflexive, as an annoying trait. I, I thought you're completely right about the sort of navel-gazing trend in in modern fiction. It's something maybe as a slightly sort of navel-gazing, solipsistic person myself. I, I I really like, and I think is I think is extremely exciting. You might you can you can add uh, writers like Gia Tolentino, whose recent book Trick Mirror, which I thought was brilliant, definitely fits into your trend of sheet lit. It was a bestseller, sort of series of series of essays from a feminist perspective about things like drugs and whether you should get married 
and all the sort of, lots of sort of trendy uh, New York liberal topics that fit into the trend. Misha Dolan's book, Exciting Times, is certainly in the trend. But I, I think I think it's just interesting. I think this is where right this is where good writers are pushing fiction at the moment is how far can you take that sort of solipsistic self-reflective impulse which i think is definitely a characteristic of my generation is that obsession with uh looking at yourself and wondering how you come across i think definitely exacerbated by social media i i don't think it'll last forever no literary trend does and i do think that maybe um some of publishing lacks the kind of diversity of opinion you might get in France, for example, I mean, France has room for voices like uh, Michel Welbeck, who's decidedly extremely non-liberal novelist, and then also uh, young male working class writers like Edouard Louis, who I don't think that we have an equivalent of in the UK. So I, I do think there are valid criticisms there. Emily and James, thanks very much. Pick up an issue of this week's magazine to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Susan Hill, who writes The Diary, Rachel Johnson on the hidden cost of lockdown puppies, and Noor Bin Laden, who writes about the curse of airport restrictions. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.